Welcome to the Semper Reformatic Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Ephesians chapter 4. And for the sake of context, we'll read from the first verse. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. We hear God's word. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lay they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking in truth, the truth in love, may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Amen. Paul has been reminding the Ephesians of the wonderful gifts that the risen and exalted Christ has has given to the church. We see them at the beginning of the chapter. We see them in verse 7. He has given grace. That's a gift, free gift of God's grace. And then in verse 11, we see that he has given growth. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for giving us Christian growth. 
And the purpose of these gifts and the continual theme that runs throughout the epistle to the Ephesians is that one day we might reach a state of unity. It's unity in two senses. Unity in doctrine, biblical doctrine, and unity in Christ. What's wrong with this statement? Here it is. I don't care about doctrine. I just love Jesus. Have you heard someone say something like that? I heard it a lot in my former ministry. I went to a church meeting, a prayer meeting one time, and I heard a man actually praying these words, Lord, help us not to be taken up with doctrine, for doctrine divides. Now, you cannot have one without the other. You can't be a believer, a member of the one universal church, the body of Christ, without knowing Jesus, without having met him and trusted him at the same time to believe in him, which requires a basic understanding of Christian teaching, of who Jesus is, of who God is, about what Christ did for sinners, his death, his resurrection, his heavenly ministry, who the Holy Spirit is. We learn these things from the Bible, from reading and contemplating the Holy Scriptures, the infallible and inerrant Word of God, Colossians 3 and 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So remember, this is a follow-on from Paul's triune example of unity. We looked at that in verse 4, 5, and 6, where there is one body and one spirit, the Holy Spirit, one Lord and one faith and one baptism, the Lord Jesus Christ, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Therefore, the Trinity is our example of unity in the true church, in the invisible church. If you say that you have a personal knowledge of Jesus and that you have met him, but yet you have no desire to to learn more of him, then something is seriously deficient with your Christianity. Or if you have someone who is a, a deep theological knowledge and no personal heartfelt experience of Christ, something also is deficient. Christianity is a religion of both the heart and the mind. So Paul insists that Jesus has given gifts to the church through the Holy Spirit for this reason. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Faith and knowledge. Faith and the understanding of the body of doctrine. Knowledge and the understanding that we must know Christ as our Lord and Saviour. What I want to do for a few minutes this evening is to look at verse 13 down to verse 16 and see what what it contains for us and what we can learn from it. Paul here is talking about our spiritual growth as a result of Christ's gracious gifts to his church. There's three things I want you to notice uh, that will characterize Christian growth. The first is maturity, and the second is honesty, and the third is unity. Maturity, honesty, and unity. Let's look at the first of those. So look at verse 13 with me, please. Till we all come 
in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does it mean to grow spiritually? Let's see what it does not mean. The authorised version here reads, unto a perfect man. But don't get the idea for one moment that you can achieve some kind of sinless perfection in this life. You cannot, for we are sinners. I know that some Christians do claim that sinless perfection is possible, that we can reach somehow a state of complete sanctification. I remember learning this lesson very early in my Christian life when I was just a young teenager. For we went to a church who, that had a pastor who was very, very outspoken and was uh, now averse to telling you off on occasions. He told me off on many an occasion. But one time, uh, a Methodist type had been talking to him. And this man had said to our pastor that he had reached a state of sinlessness, sinless perfection. He hadn't sinned apparently for 20 years. And he said this to the pastor boastfully. He says, you know, I haven't sinned for the past 20 years or so. And our pastor, being a a man who spoke his mind, says, well, you'll never be able to say that again. He said, why? Because you've just told me a downright lie. And that's a sin. It's impossible that you can achieve perfection in this life, no matter what the Methodists tell you or others. The idea conveyed here in Ephesians 4 is not sinlessness. Only Christ was sinless. We remain sinners until the day that we reach heaven at home. The difference is that Christians are repentant sinners. We sorrow over our sins. We seek forgiveness for our sins. So what does Paul mean here? Well, the received text, of course, helps us. The word that's translated perfect here is the word teleon. It means end or distance, like the word telescope. It means looking ahead. It's something that we see ahead of us. It's something that we aim for. It's something that we want to be. We want to be like Christ. We want to be perfect, knowing that we won't reach that perfection here in this life. Nevertheless, we strive for it. Paul is talking here about maturity, about growing up as believers. In fact, he says so in verse 15. He says that we are to grow up into him in all things. There you are. So what will being a mature Christian involve? Well, it involves, first of all, getting the right role model. Paul's very careful here. Look at what he says in verse 13. He talks about how we are to grow unto a perfect man till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now what's a measure? Well, if you're a carpenter or a joiner, you'll know what a measure is. Or if you work with your hands at a trade, 
last Thursday, I got a phone call from my daughter. She'd got a, a mirror for to hang up over her fire. And you see, whenever my daughter gets something practical like that to do, she calls her daddy, as all daughters do. And I went round to the house, and there above the, the, the fire was the space cleared on the fire chimney breast, and the mirror was sitting. And I said, right, I've brought my electric drill. Have you got a ruler, uh, a, a tape measure? Oh, no, I've nothing like that. And I hadn't brought one with me. We had to improvise. I had to get a piece of string. And I had to measure the string across the chimney breast. And then I folded the string in two. And I got her to hold one end of it. And I brought the string into the middle and made a wee mark. And she says, what's that for? And I says, that's where I'm going to drill the hole. Right in the center. I was using a measure. I was measuring against something objective. Not guessing. Now, that's exactly what Paul is telling us here. He's telling us that we're not to guess about our Christian life. We're to measure ourselves against an objective measure. And that measure is Jesus. We're to be like him. He is our role model. Now, we need role models in life. Even in the practical sense, even growing up as small children, in the the physical sense, we need role models. That's why, as Christians, we're so saddened with the breakdown of the nuclear family, isn't it? Babies growing up, children growing up, they need role models. They need a mommy and they need a daddy. It's not always possible for them to have that. Death intervenes, sad circumstances bring divorces, so on and so forth. But ideally, children need a mommy and a daddy. That is why, one of the reasons why, not the only reason, one of the reasons why we must deeply oppose the idea of homosexual couples adopting children, of lesbian couples having babies, because children need both parents. They need a role model that's male and a role model that's female. And the fact that we are seeing families growing up these days without a male role model is destroying boyhood and it's destroying young manhood. We need role models in life. But as Christians, our role model is Christ. Of course, we cannot ever attain a likeness of him completely because he is God's only begotten son. We're only adopted children, but we do want to be like him. First Corinthians 11 and verse 1, Paul writes, Be ye followers of me, even as I am, I also am of Christ. First Peter 2 and 21, For even there hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. So you see, the Lord Jesus is our role model as we grow as Christians. Not Martin Luther, not John Calvin, not Knox, not Wesley, not Spurgeon, not Martin Lloyd-Jones, not even Ian Paisley, certainly not the likes of me. We aim to be like Jesus. 
He is our model, our benchmark. And what will that involve? Let's look again at our text. It will involve, first of all, leaving our immaturity behind. That we, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children. We're not to remain children. We're expected to grow up. Paul wrote in First Corinthians 13 and verse 11, When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. First Corinthians 14 and verse 20. Brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. So what is it like to be a child? Well, again, we have the text before us. The first thing that children are is unstable. That's certainly true of, of immature Christians. Paul talks here about being tossed to and fro in verse 14. Tossed to and fro. Now, let's be honest, there are fads and fashions in Christianity, isn't there? Just as much as in secular society, there always has been. When I worked in Christian publishing back in the 90s, I was sometimes shocked at how often publishers would jump on the latest bandwagon. The so-called Toronto Blessing came along in the 90s, and they all seemed to get onto the bandwagon. Just about every publisher that I represented jumped in on it, including one who published a book that was so rushed and so awful that when the bandwagon quickly passed by, as they do, it was being sold in the shops at five pence before it eventually was pulped. Sinclair B. Ferguson in Let's Study Ephesians wrote, The marketing of literature and television preachers, seminars and videos and DVDs and the like almost necessitates novelty. The pride of the human heart does not like to be thought old-fashioned. These things come and go. And immature Christians are caught up and sometimes swept away by these things. But biblical truth never changes. The church never changes. The Lord's people, the body of Christ, the church is an institution that always stands despite the winds of error that blow against it. And so Paul argues here and teaches us that we are not to be tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Those are the things that characterize the childishness of modern Christianity. I got a text one day from a gentleman who asked me what time a certain service was at. And I got talking to him, and I asked him, where do you normally attend? And he gave me the name of the church where he went to. And I said to him, that should be a good church. He says, it is, but the worship is infantile. You can take from that what you want. Unstable. Just going with every fad, every new thing that comes in. But the other thing about children that we see here, and it applies also to the the state of childishness that prevails in modern Christianity and from which we must grow up, is its gullibility. 
Look what it says next in verse 14. Paul says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Now, we don't often use the word slight these days. Sure, we don't. So what does it mean? The Greek word is kubia. And it was, according to Muntz, it was uh, basically a reference to playing with a dice. You know a dice? It's a little cube with numbers on it. Playing with a cube, using craftiness or trickery to fool others or defraud them. Now, did you ever play snakes and ladders when you were young? You know what that game's like? You have to go up the ladders, and if you fall, or your, your counter falls on a snake, you have to go down the snake. And the person at the top of the board first is the person that wins. And I used to play that with my young bro- younger brother and with my grandfather. My granda would come into the house and we would say, Granda, we'll play snakes and ladders and we'd get the game out. But, you know, uh, I have to confess I tried to cheat. And what I would do is I would get the dice and say I needed four squares in order to miss the snake what I would do is I'd put the dice into the wee cup and surreptitiously I would look in the cup and see where the dice was and I would cover it with my hand and I'd put my finger down into the cup and I'd move it to where I wanted it to be and I would hold it while I was shaking it and then I would let it out ever so gently and my granda would know what I was doing. He'd slap my hand. Don't you do that. That's cheating. That's sleight of hand. Now that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. People who are trying to deceive you by cunning ways, by sleight of hand, like like I was trying to do with my brother. And these people are not just the militant atheists. They're not just the humanists of modern days. These people, these deceivers, are actually inside the church itself. Ferguson again. Sinclair B. Ferguson in that book. Study and meditation, application and obedience will develop in us the ability to see clearly, to distinguish between what is true and false and between what is good and what is best. We are then not deceived by false teaching, The truth of the gospel makes our spiritual antennae sensitive. The word seeps into our instincts so that we can sense the superficial and detect teaching that is sinister or dangerous. Never has this been more urgent. The deceivers are lurking in the visible church. They're hiding in plain sight. And Paul says that as Christians, we are to grow and we are to reach maturity. And by growing, we will leave behind us. We will leave behind us the instability of our spiritual childhood and the gullibility of our spiritual childhood. So the second thing then that we see here is honesty. Verse 15, speaking the truth. 
And part of growing and part of maturity includes developing integrity. Christian character should be markedly different, not in how we, not just in how we act and react and speak to others, but in the vital area of Christian integrity, being honest and having strong moral principles that we obtain from Holy Scripture. And we should see this form of personal development as we grow from childhood into adulthood. Spiritual growth is no different. Our personal testimony, our credibility as believers, stands or falls by our truthfulness, our integrity. And speaking the truth doesn't always come naturally to people, does it? We all tell lies. We all say falsehoods. It's not something that we need to learn. It's not learned behavior like foul language. I heard a mother talking to her children at, at an event recently, actually, actually at a funeral, and she was admonishing one of her children for doing something that he shouldn't have done. And I'm afraid every other word in the woman's mouth was a swear word in front of these young children. And those young children will grow up doing that. That's learned behavior. They, they, they aren't born with that vocabulary. They, they learn it in their home. They learn it among their friends. It's learned. But lying, lying comes naturally. Children begin to lie as soon as they can speak. A certain little boy had a model train in his hands. And when I walked into the room, he very quickly put it behind his back because he knew he wasn't allowed it. And I said to him, what's that you've got behind your back? And he said, nothing. I have nothing behind my... Well, he had. He was only a wee small child. He'd only learned recently to speak. Didn't have to teach him that. No one taught him to tell lies. Comes naturally as part of our sinful nature. But as believers, we're to be careful about that. We're always to speak the truth. The Heidelberg Catechism says, I must not give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander nor condemn nor join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard. Rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works, under penalty of God's heavy wrath. In court and everywhere else, I must love the truth, speak and confess it honestly, do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. The target for every Christian believer who is wanting to be like Christ is to avoid all lying and deceit and to love the truth because the believer has been brought into a saving relationship with the God who alone is truth and through whom all truth derives. Jesus, God's only begotten Son, said that he is the way and the truth and the life and we cannot love the Lord without being a lover of all things true. And we must speak with honesty because when we know the truth, we must confess it. We must be vocal about it. It's not good enough to remain silent when people speak falsely, especially when they speak falsely about God or about Christ or about the church. We must speak up. 
But look at how we must speak. We must speak the truth with love, always. That's important. It's not good enough to demand and insist on absolute truth. How we speak the truth is important. We just speak the truth tempered with love. Truth needs love. Love always involves truthfulness. And then finally, we look at verse 16. And this is a difficult verse to read and to grasp. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now that's difficult, isn't it? It's not too hard, though, when you sit and break it down. Paul's been writing a lot about Christian unity in Ephesians. As I've said, it really is the overall theme of the book. But now in verse 16, he's comparing the church, and that's the place where Christian growth ought to be nurtured. He's comparing the church as a healthy body, growing and working and flourishing, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. 1987. I can remember it well. And I was feeling terribly ill that year. I'd taken a virus and I was flattened uh, almost with it. Um, The virus was attacking my liver. And at the first, before we discovered this, I wondered why I was so tired, why I was so listless, and why I had no energy. I I remember going to the swimming baths in Armagh with a group of young people from the church, and I swam one breadth of the pool and had to get out and lie on the side of the pool for several minutes, for five or ten minutes, before I could get the energy to get back up onto my knees and struggle back to the changing room. So I went to see the doctor. And the doctor looked at my notes, and he looked at me, and he said to me, for goodness sake, man, you're only 33 years of age. You're in the very prime of life. Not sure he could say that now. But you see, that's the way Paul thinks about the church. The invisible church, the body of true believers, the church that God sees, it is actually in the prime of life. You may be looking at it and thinking it's fragmented and disorientated. You may think that it's under attack. You may think that it's beset with schism and and that it's terribly separated and that it's ineffective and not doing its work. It's easy to look at the visible church and think that the invisible church is the same. It's easy to look at the, the visible church that you see and the denominations that you see and think we are it's a hopeless situation because they're not taking a stand for anything. And yet, When God looks at the church, he sees the church that Christ has redeemed, and that church is in perfect health. Paul says it here. He tells us 
that the whole church, the whole body is fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. Everything's doing its work. Every part of the body is contributing to its life. The church that God says is in peak condition. Every bone, every joint, all knitted together, all its various parts, all doing their separate work, all growing and developing and maturing and building itself up for the gates of hell cannot stand against it because it is being built by Christ himself. So Paul puts that in this verse like this. According to the effectual working, in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Don't you be worried about Christ's church. God is building his church and it is in perfect health, the true church. And all parts loving each other with unselfish love. Matthew Henry wrote, Mutual love among Christians is a great friend to spiritual growth. It is in love that the body edifies itself, whereas a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. So we grow as believers with the gifts that Christ has given us, the gift of grace to bring us into his kingdom. And the gift of ministry, encouraging growth, for it is through the word of God that we are fed and that we progress from children receiving the sincere milk of the word to being adults receiving the strong meat. And we progress as we follow the Lord Jesus as our example, as we are prepared for eventual perfection and glory, not in this life, aiming for perfection, aiming to be like Jesus. And people will see this great spiritual work within us as our character develops, as honesty and integrity become our hallmark, as it is reflected in our speech and our truthfulness and our love, our love for God, our love for our neighbor, our love for the Lord's church. And all of that unites us in the body of Christ. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.